This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. We continue our series, Choosing Contentment. Contentment is a choice. It's a perspective shift. It's something you comprehend through faith in Jesus. I like to think that I'm a content person with the things that I have, Quick story, when I was dating Sarah, my wife, I remember telling her without much context, um, I don't care about much. I'm trying to tell her about myself. You guys are laughing already, yes. And in my head, I was adequately and proficiently saying, you know, I'm just content with what I have. And in her head, she was accurately asking, did he just say that he doesn't care about this relationship, about me, about anything in life, it was a giant hole that I put myself in that day. I'm not content in my communication with my <laughs> wife. Right? Uh, contentment is not just uh, simply just caring less about things, oppressing the desires, and, and being apathetic. No. I asked her this week if she thought I was content with the things that I have, and she said, yeah. A little pride check there so you don't think I'm bragging about myself up here. Oh, you wait. There's more. There's more but I do genuinely feel that I am blessed abundantly with what I have. And it was uh, easy for me to believe that I was working, as I was working on my sermon in my office, uh, a homeless man who was sleeping under our church's patio with a, a trash bag uh, over his body because he didn't have, uh, it was raining and he didn't have a jacket. Yeah, I have much compared to that man. Now, unfortunately, if you ask me, Robin, are you content with yourself? That's a whole different question for me. For some reason, when I look at what others don't have, I see how much I have. However, when I look at who others are, I see who I am not, but I wish I was. When I look at others, I wish I was more intellectual, a better preacher, communicator of the word, have a, a deeper faith, a better prayer life. If I'm being honest, I, I throw a little bit taller in there, right, while we're being vulnerable. So I am above the male height average in India. So context. In Yemen, I'm a giant. I looked this up, sermon prepping. It's more difficult to find contentment in those things because you feel less than, right? inadequate, insufficient. It's difficult to choose contentment in who I am at times. Maybe you're here today, you're content with yourself, but not content with what's happening to you, the situation that you're currently facing. When you look at others enjoying their jobs, finding fulfillment in their jobs, you're like, man, why, why can't I find that joy and that fulfillment? You look at others' health and wonder, why is God allowing these physical ailments to affect me like this and not them? Why am I faced with this crippling anxiety? Or you may look at others' upbringing and path and ask God, man, why do I have to suffer? Why do I have to always take the hard road in life and dig at the easy ones? It's difficult to choose contentment in these situations. We can turn contentment into a comparison game. This is how you play the game. If you are content because you're comparing yourself with others, 
or if you're discontent because you're comparing yourself with others. Congratulations, you've been playing the game pretty easy. The comparison game, it's a crafty game because the rules keep changing because how and who you compare yourself keeps changing. So let me ask you, does the comparison of others lead you to contentment or discontentment? Does the comparison of others lead you to contentment or discontentment? Because unfortunately, lasting contentment doesn't stick if it's driven by comparison. Comparison leads to temporarily escaping the inadequacies, the hardship, the weaknesses, right? You're kind of putting it onto the side. It may lead to gratitude, but are you really content? God doesn't call us to escape our weaknesses, but he calls to embrace them and choose contentment even in our weakness. And what weakness are we talking about, right? We're not... What we're not talking about is justifying sin and sinful behavior in our lives and calling that weakness. No, God calls us to repent from sin and not to be callous about it. When I'm saying weakness, it's our sense of powerlessness, inadequacies, hardships, suffering that equates to weakness. But even in all those things, we still have a choice. And so our title for today's sermon is Choosing contentment and weakness. Choosing contentment and weakness. And we'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. And uh, this is our big idea for today. Uh, we choose contentment in our weakness because Jesus is sufficient. We choose contentment in our weakness because Jesus is sufficient. And in order to choose contentment in our weakness, we need to understand the purpose of our weakness the best that we can. Right? In these four verses, I want to share three purposes of weakness. Three purposes of weakness. Here's the first one. Weakness fosters humility. Weakness fosters humility. Let's look at the text, chapter 12, verses 7. This is what the word says. So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. And in this part of the letter, he's called to attention an issue that is detrimental to the pulse of the church. The congregation in Corinth, as one author says, they were flirting with spiritual adultery without knowing it. Right? Paul was afraid. Right? He says in, in chapter 11, verse 3, he says, I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what's been happening in this church. Their spiritual growth, their devotion, the gospel they received, it was trying to be replaced by a false gospel, right? There's only one gospel of Jesus Christ, but the enemy deceivingly works to make you doubt that just a little bit. False teaching was being spread by what Paul sarcastically calls as super apostles, right? Super apostles. They spoke elegantly of an attractive gospel, which to the natural mind made sense. 
These super apostles, they uh, commended themselves, compared themselves with others to elevate themselves. And they inserted what I like to call preference-based theology versus gospel theology. I love to go fishing, but I don't go fishing or don't understand it, don't know much about it. So I just go to Boston Fish Market and eat the already caught fish there. It's much easier, much easier form of fishing. But (laughs) this is what I know about fishing, the little that I know. Uh, The best lures when you go fishing are the ones that look real, right? The most attractive, the the one that seduces you without realizing it. Our flesh is attracted to it because it makes sense to the flesh. A false gospel makes you feel better without needing anything or anyone. A gospel that is contentment is already found in you. Contentment is here. Happiness is already here. These super apostles, they were boasting in themselves, exalting in themselves, teaching about something outside of being saved by grace through Christ alone. Their hearts were prideful and they were intentionally aimed for division within the, within the church. The super apostles were indeed false apostles. And Paul goes far enough to say that they were deceitful men disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, in which reality they were servants of Satan. That's what Paul says. And now Paul is at a point where he reluctantly has to defend his ministry for the sake of the church. He sees the necessity of of clearing the air, the haze, the confusion. And he clears the air by boasting in himself. But not in a manner like these super apostles who are pridefully boasting in themselves. No, Paul chooses to defend himself, defend the ministry of the true gospel by boasting in his weakness, in his hardships, through humility so the name of Jesus would be exalted, not himself. Chapter 12 continues of him boasting, or he draws to an experience 14 years ago when Paul had a vision, a revelation of the Lord when he was caught up into the third heavens, into paradise, and heard things that cannot be told. I hope there wasn't any tension with Paul and his best friend during at that time. Just tell me what happened. I can't. He had the reason to boast what the Lord had showed him through the vision. He had the reason. And it happened to him, but it was even hard for Paul to describe, to even clarify further, unspeakable glory. He was in literal awe. He then introduces the thorn in his flesh that was given 14 years ago that still agonizes him. A thorn translated as a a large stake. Not a New York strip. But a stake that you drive something into the ground so it stays to the ground. Paul was given a thorn so that he would be grounded in humility. We're talking about Paul here. We don't know exactly what his thorn was, but scholars suggest it may be a bodily illness, a physical ailment, a speech defect, or a vision impairment, which I think may be the case here. But we really don't know. But whatever it was, it wasn't just a, uh, a minor headache that he felt here and there, right? It was more than an annoyance. It was a, a daily battle, a sustained pain. 
And he doesn't mention it here because either the Corinthians knew or they were aware of it or he kept it vague on purpose because the thorn wasn't the point. The intent of the thorn was the point. Now, what was the intent of the thorn to, to foster humility? Right, Paul was thinking, man, if I didn't have this thing slowing me down, man, I can even do more for Jesus. That can be Paul version 2.0. I can have a more effective ministry. I can go harder and stronger. And I've honestly thought the same thing of myself. God, if you just allowed me to have what this person has and what this person has, I could just do so much more for you. I can affect so many more people. I can touch so many people. If I just had this. However, God was more concerned to build Paul's character and prevent him from being prideful. God doesn't need effective people. God wants humble people. And the text links the thorn to Paul by a messenger of Satan to harass him. So was the thorn given to him by God or was it by Satan to harass him? The answer is yes. Because we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose. Even the enemy's desire to harass Paul, God's purpose still remained fully intact and unmoved. And that was for Paul not be conceited. And we see this in the life of Job, where God permits Satan to afflict his servant, and turns that affliction for good. And so, so what? What what does that mean to us today in this room? The ramifications of sin are still present in our lives, and Satan is actively working to divide, to doubt, to deceive. Diseases, chronic illness, anxiety, car accidents, infertility, miscarriages, Obviously, none of these are, are good things. And we can be traced back to Genesis 3 when the fall happened. But at the same time, God can even use the worst tragedies for good. He uses these things for his purpose that benefit us, including to keep us humble. And so this morning, let me ask you, how are you responding in the areas of your life where God is humbling you? Are you seeing? Are you paying attention? How are you responding in the areas of your life where God is humbling you? Weakness fosters humility, but it doesn't always lead to humility, depending on your response, right? You can respond in an arrogant way by not acknowledging your weakness, your faults. You can blame everyone for the situation that you're in, and you miss the intent of the thorn, of the trial, of the hardship. You can choose to to not repent and and not go before God, but God will not be mocked. You end up looking like a fool. God's purpose was humility. Satan's purpose was to use Paul's weakness so Paul, Paul would fold and be prideful and arrogant. That's who the enemy desires. But Paul doesn't give himself to pride by exalting his experience of his vision. He wasn't trying to present himself in a way that made him look the best. I don't take a picture of me on this side. Take a picture of me on this side, right? 
I don't get that. I feel like both of my sides look the same. Just don't take a picture for me, please. <laughs> the temptation of the flesh is to paint ourselves in the best possible light, in the best possible angle. We want our image to be unblemished, and we've, ble- we've linked unblemished people to Christianity. We want our image to be like super Christians. We want this so much, we'd rather have ourselves look good than being vulnerable, being honest, being humble, embracing our weakness, hardness, hardship, struggles. Being a Christian is not being about unblemished. It's acknowledging that you are fully blemished. No one is righteous. Pride strives for others to see an unblemished version of you for the sake of your self-righteousness. But humility strives for others to see the blemished version of you for the sake of Christ's righteousness. I had a a fake formula in my head, right? The harder I work using my ability, using my strength, the more God will provide his strength, right? It wasn't a 50%, 50%, right? Not that heretical. But more like 90%, 10%. 90% of the work, or 10% of the work I do, and then and only then God will do the rest. I had that formula incorrect. One commentary says, God's upside-down formula for gospel impact is not divine strength plus human strength, but divine strength plus human weakness. And as Christians, we sometimes do a, a good job exalting other Christians, making them into uh, super preachers, super Christians, super non-sinners, or sometimes even better of doing the inverse, degrading those who have committed sin, and we hear it on the news and the articles, right? Super sinners. I'm not saying that sin should not be called out. Sin should be called out, and we should repent, and they should repent, and we should encourage one another. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't want us to be playing the comparison game. When I catch myself doing that more focused on how others are living righteous or unrighteously, instead of looking at my own heart and asking, God, where do I need to repent? Which areas of my life are not yours? We're all blemished, sinful. I heard someone say, I want to be walking around as a nobody that can't do anything, knowing that I know somebody that can do all things through that nobody. That person was me. I just said it. <laughs> Weakness fosters humility. Are you allowing God to foster humility in your life? Three purposes of weakness. The second one. Weakness provides dependency on prayer. Weakness provides dependency on prayer. Let's look at verse 8, chapter 12. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times Paul prayed, right? Man, my prayer life would be so efficient if I just followed this model. Just praying three times, I would save so much time so I could watch sports or something like that. Maybe if you pray that fourth time, things would have been different. I don't know. I wasn't there. I was here. We see three often used in these scriptures to sometimes portray a fullness 
or an intensity, right? God is holy, 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 or the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three portrayed a fullness. And so this may mean there was a, a full request made, a time of sustained intercession, of prayers, a complete request. And how did he pray? It wasn't a, a casual prayer, like sometimes we pray for food, right? That's not a, a, a bad thing, nothing wrong with it, but I haven't been around a dinner table where someone was pleading to God during the dinner table. He knew the intent of the thorn of his weakness, but did not mean that he was enjoying it. His genuine desire was for this to be done with, even knowing God's purpose. About four years ago, my wife and I started praying for two things. That God would bring healing to Sarah and and God would bless us with a child. Some of you already know this story because you have been praying the same thing with us. And the story, Sarah, she literally felt weak due to what was going on, her uh, autoimmune disease, and and affected her daily. That was her thorn, her ailment, her daily affliction since college. Maybe I should sit down and have her come up and finish this sermon. Just kidding, that would didn't happen because she'd kill me first because of putting her on the spot, and that would be a distraction. <laughs> Is she looking at me? <laughs> but we prayed to, to be off meds. We prayed for relief of swelling, relief of pain, healing in her immune system, and somehow after all that, that she would conceive a child. And we started to pray in faith and and actually believe in that time period, we discovered that her lupus affected her kidneys. The thing that I was afraid of the most before we got married was happening now. And I was afraid that this would happen in her 60s, not in her mid-20s. And my prayer as I prayed for God to grow my family became, God, don't take away my family. At the time, her health... Regressed, we stayed overnight, we had to do biopsies, and we saw an oncologist, a nephrologist, a hematologist, all the ologists we saw, except the the one that we wanted to see the most, an obstetrician for pregnancy. And I remember having a moment asking God, God, why is this happening now? When we've been so faithful in prayer, when we started to finally have a prayer life, why is it getting worse when we started to pray more? God gave me a word from his word in Mark 9 when the father goes to Jesus to ask for healing of his son. And he doesn't pray for healing. He says, help my unbelief. Our inability led us to pray for a deeper faith. The two things we've been praying for became two other things. God, give us faith to believe in who you are and help us to bless your name in this. It wasn't because we had a lack of faith. It wasn't because we were doing something wrong that the trials happened. I don't know exactly why trials happen, but God does, and his purpose is good. It was through him humbling us, providing us to be dependent on him in prayer when he works the most. And we saw him work the most, not what he just did out there, but what he was doing in our hearts. He helped us see who he is 
where prayer is a spiritual discipline that invites God to work in us. Prayer does not work by God just giving you what you want. No, prayer works when God works in you. Prayer works when God works in you. So are you inviting God to work in your life through prayer? That's where he wants to be. That's where he wants to dwell in our weakness, in our inadequacies. And it's okay to pray to get out of trials uh, for healing, for your desires. Uh, You don't need to oppress your desires. That's not how you choose contentment. But in humility, in dependency, in prayer, invite God's presence to dwell. Due to God's grace and, and power, Four years later, not only did God provide Cain and her son, he brought healing to Sarah through faith and died and perseverance in a way that you couldn't even tell anything was wrong with her in the first place. But that's my God. Glory to him forever. Affliction is affliction. We tend to compare our affliction and our trials and our troubles with others. I may, have, I, may, I may have heard the most powerful testimony I've ever had this past week of a family in China being persecuted due to their faith, physically beaten, separated, jailed, tortured, and even death. Man, it was so powerful. But what I don't want us to play is even playing the comparison game in this. When we compare in an unhealthy way and desire a different level of affliction, more affliction, or, or less affliction, when that happens, we, light us, we, lo- we lose sight of what God's doing in our lives. God answered Paul's prayer, but not in a way that Paul wished. God did not remove the thorn Paul had. Instead, he gave him the power and grace to sustain him through his weakness, because weakness permits Jesus' grace and power to be revealed. That's our third point, third purpose of weakness. Weakness permits Jesus' power, sorry, Jesus' grace and power to be revealed. Let's look at verse 9. The word says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Uh, This is the answer to Paul's prayer, a promise. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. This is the, the secret to our contentment and our weakness, knowing and going to this verse and understanding it and living it out. Grace is undeserved favor. The grace of Jesus is a beautiful thing, amen? God's word says this about grace, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, but is a gift of God so that no one may boast. Romans 11.6 says this, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Or grace would no longer be grace. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And one of my favorite verses of the Bible, John 1, 16, and from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. 
received grace in place of grace already given. And when we are humble, God gives grace. When we are used for the Lord, we are filled in his grace. When we approach his throne of grace, we may receive mercy in time of need due to his grace. I've been saved by grace, unmerited favor. The grace of Jesus is sufficient for you. Present tense, not past tense, right? It doesn't say, my grace was sufficient. His grace is presently sufficient, meaning if you are in Christ, whenever you are in need, the grace of Jesus is generously offered to you and it is sufficient. It's sufficient grace. Fresh grace from the oven. Not that stale grace. Sometimes we offer that stale grace. I got some leftover grace too. There you go. The weakness of today, Jesus' grace is sufficient. The trials of tomorrow, Jesus' grace is sufficient. The hardship to come, Jesus' grace is sufficient. His grace is not a package that we just feel. It's not a gift card that we use that eventually runs out. When Jesus says, my grace is sufficient, what he means is that I am sufficient for you. I'm sufficient for you. I will sustain you. My presence will be with you, and it is sufficient. The grace of Jesus allows us to experience the living Christ in our lives through weakness. You get to experience him. The grace of Jesus is a beautiful thing, amen? Man, I was so ready to name my first child Grace until it was a boy. But Grace spelled backwards is Caden. No, it's not. Just... <laughs> Just making sure you're paying attention. <laughs> Some of you guys did that real quick, like, what? <laughs> D.A. Carson, in his book, A Model of Christian Maturity, says this, The divine grace bestowed on Paul was sufficient, uh, was sufficient precisely because Paul was so weak. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. It reaches its fullest measure and most powerful forms when issued in response to weakness. The greater the Christian weakness, the greater the grace poured out. It is through our weakness within this grace. The power of Jesus is made perfect and revealed. Right? This is so countercultural. This is not a way of helping yourself. This is the way of Jesus. The power of Christ is not just a pep assembly that happens in your mind cheering you on. Yes, Robin, you can do this. You can do this. The power of Christ is not a cheerleader. It is a divine power from God himself that sustains you, that strengthens you, that allows you to be well-pleased, that allows you to be content. Dane Ortland in his commentary says this, what we must not miss is that it is not Paul's strength, but God's. Paul's contribution is weakness. 
But this is not a concession. It is precisely what God needs. This is the mystery, the wonder, the glory of apostolic Christianity. Our weakness attracts, not repels, God's own power. Our lowness and incapacities, which we naturally fear and flee, are precisely where God loves to dwell. Now Paul's like, man, forget about moving this thing. May the power of Christ rest all upon me. Reminds me of Peter when the disciples, or Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, and Peter's like, Jesus, you are never going to wash my feet. No way. And Jesus says, man, if I don't do this, you have no part with me, Peter. Peter's like, wash my hands, wash my feet, wash my head, wash my stomach. That last part's not in the Bible. Paul uses the verb rest here, which is built on the root word for tabernacle. Where God's presence dwelt in the times of the Old Testament. The divine power of God is found in his presence. He works in weak and sinful people like you and I. Because for those who abide in Christ, he has promised this, I will never leave you or forsake you. If his presence is with us, his power is with us. His conclusion then is in uh, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? This is the secret. This is how we choose contentment in our weakness for the sake of Christ so that his power may rest upon us in his sufficient grace. And as a drop the mic response to these super apostles, to the Corinth church, he says, and I will boast all the gladly of my weaknesses. I'm content. And the Greek verb used here as content is to be well-pleased with or to delight in. I'm not saying that we need to delight in hardship, weakness, struggles. Your affliction is not to be minimalized. A feeling of weakness physically, intellectually, educationally, spiritually, it is not to be ignored. But for the sake of Christ, our weakness, our insult, our hardships, our persecution, our calamities lead us to a state where God's presence is with us. And we get to be used by him so that the name of Jesus may be glorified and magnified. That's why we can choose to be content in all those things. Because we know in our inabilities, in our ailments, in our failures, that that's exactly how God uses the weak to lead the strong. For when I am weak, I am strong. Knowing this truth right now, we choose contentment in our weakness, knowing that Jesus is sufficient. God created mankind to live in that contentment and in communion with God, but we have chosen ourselves over God. We disobeyed God's holy command for us. So a separation happened between man's relationship and God's relationship with God. A separation caused by 
sin, and the Bible makes it clear that we have all sinned and fall short for the glory of God. Not only was there a break in relationship, but the wages of sin is death, eternal death in hell. But out of God's grace, God sent his son, fully man and fully God, to be with us. Right? God's power didn't just exist in a tabernacle this time. God himself dwelt with us 2,000 years ago. And Jesus, he lived a, a life of perfect obedience, though he faced weakness, and persecution, and hardship, and calamities. He knew what laid in front of him, a path that led to his death, death on a cross. But even Jesus, in humility and in prayer, on the night that he was arrested, he asked, God, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he prayed this three times. He prayed in his weakness, but remained obedient to God, which did lead him to a death on the cross. But it was through his death, the power of God was on fully display for the universe to sing about. For the universe to see for three days later the power of God. Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death in itself. And forever. And he was in heaven waiting for his second coming for the completion of redemption. Jesus is sufficient. He is sufficient even in death. If you choose to believe in him, if you choose to believe in him, if you choose to repent from our own ways of, of us being king of our own lives, if you choose to believe in Jesus as king, as savior, his grace is there. He is sufficient. And so will you choose contentment today? Not because what's going on in your life, outside of your life, not because how you feel, not because of your trials or hardships, simply because of the sufficiency of Jesus. He's enough. He's the only thing that will ever be enough. We choose contentment in our weakness because Jesus is sufficient. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.